what's going on. We have a fantastic, fun episode for you today where we are combining the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast with a really cool other podcast run by the fantastic Tabitha Cusera, which is called Tales from a Vet Tech. So we sat down to talk about ways that we can handle cats with more gentleness, where we can use more low-stress handling techniques, um, drug combinations we could potentially use for those stressed-out cats, and also, ultimately, how to step away from using the induction chamber or blocking the box in our practices. So sit down, take a listen uh, to Tabitha and I discussing all the ways we love these spicy cats. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Tasha. Thank you so much for being here to talk about one of the topics that cause us both a lot of anxiety um, and anger. <laughs> so we all know that everyone is learning. We call it practicing vet med because we're always improving and getting better. But today we are talking about a fairly outdated anesthesia technique or sedation technique that unfortunately we're seeing done a lot in practice and in shelter medicines to this day, even though it's 2022. So when we see a problem, we're all about educating people about it that may not be aware of why it's concerning for animals or humans, and then talking about what to do instead. So we're not just saying stop, but we're saying stop. This is why. And these are the, the alternative things that we want you to do. So today we're talking about Boxing down cats, which just a brief definition for people that may not be familiar is essentially when you induce anesthesia or sedation with inhalant and anesthetic drugs alone. So in some cases, this may be a mask that is placed over the cat's face and the anesthesia is turned on to essentially mask them. Or what is commonly seen is where they are placed in a box basically stuffed in a box that is then filled with anesthetic gas, which mm -hmm. is, as you guys can imagine, a prolonged and very stressful way to be anesthetized. So thank you so much for being here, Tasha, to talk about this fun topic. <laughs> fun. You know, I got a lot of soapboxes. I hate to say like, this is my one thing. Uh, but you know, in anesthesia land, there's a lot of things that are my one thing that I think that Again, this is not to to shame people like, oh, you're doing it wrong. But yeah, guys, we're doing it wrong. And uh, we or we could be doing it better. You know, we have a lot of data out there. We have information out there that, uh, you know, 10 years ago, when I was a new baby tech, we were talking about why we shouldn't be doing it. And we just have more information now as why this is not the best choice, you know, not only for our patients, but for our staff as well. Right. So let's, and I will be sharing for all the lovely nerds, because I'm sure there are some out there, the various studies out there that you can use to help maybe, because you may be someone that is opposed to this and are aware of the why not to do these things, but maybe it's hard to get some of your staff members on board, or if you're in shelter medicine, again, same thing. So we will be definitely sharing some a handout as well as some lovely studies in the show notes that you guys can check out to hopefully help change people's mind and help, help them provide better quality and updated care. So to get started, Tasha, let's talk about, which I'm sure, again, many, many things, why we should not be doing this 
boxing cat procedure? Yeah, certainly. So there's a couple of reasons. Uh, well, first, let's start with the patient, right? Why this isn't a good choice for the patient themselves. Um, there was a 2009 study that showed that if we just induce patients and maintain them on inhalants alone, we get increased risk of anesthetic fatalities. And in veterinary medicine, we already have a higher uh, morbidity and mortality rate than in human medicine. Now, that's for a lot of factors, not just because we're doing these, these, this kind of technique. Um, but certainly this technique is not in the best interest of the patient. So usually what happens, especially if we're doing something called boxing or even the masking, um, what happens is that high dose of inhalant anesthetic is used. And as Tabitha uh, might have said, you're usually putting your vaporizer up at something like 4%, 5%, the higher percentages. So this is a pretty potent dose of these drugs. And these drugs are not benign. They can cause physiologic changes. We deal with hypotension, respiratory depression. In addition, um, mask uh, or that inhalant induction requires a prolonged period. You have no protected airway. If the patient goes into a respiratory or a, a cardiac arrest while inside the box, you have no way of quickly delivering drugs, um, it's really just not the best thing for the patient, uh, especially, especially when we're looking at patients like brachycephalic patients or, you know, our rabbit friends, something like that. We don't want to, we don't want to, not only would we not want to do this in cats or, or other animals. Um, and I hear it a lot, like, well, it's an exotic species. We have to, like, I can just refer you to plenty of VTS and exotic medicine that will let you know why this is also a bad idea in your exotic friends as well. Also, just something to think about, especially if we are just doing masking or boxing alone and not using any injectables, when animals are uh, going through the stages or phases of anesthesia to get from awake to a surgical plane of anesthesia, they go through something called the excitatory phase. You guys might have experienced the excitatory phase if you've ever given a spicy cat midazolam. It's a lot. But the excitatory phase can be exaggerated or prolonged with inhalant only. And during that excitatory phase, they can have tachycardia, hypertension, hyperventilation, and increased risk of arrhythmias. And again, in a situation where you can't quickly get your hands on the animal, or you can't provide, or you don't have IV access, or you don't have an endotracheal tube in, or a way to quickly provide an endotracheal tube, this can be really dangerous to our patients. So we definitely don't want to do that. Now, let's flip over to why this is also not a great idea for our veterinary team, right? Usually, again, because this is such a high amount of inhalant anesthetic, when the person takes the mask away or opens that box up, they, whoever it is, the veterinary technician, the assistant, or even the veterinarian themselves, are going to get a big whopping dose of inhalant anesthetic, right? You're going to be able to smell it. And if anybody here has ever participated in a mask induction, you usually can smell it because a it's, lot of the time, you know, it is yeah. not a safe situation for the humans or animals. Definitely. No. So we know, and I can give you some of these studies that in human medicine, um, in dentistry professionals or in anesthesia recovery nurses, et cetera, uh, we have seen that the inhalant gas and exposure to inhalant gas over a period of time. So again, if you're working in veterinary medicine for 10 years, you know, maybe even more like I have, you've been in it for 16 years. If you're getting exposed to waste anesthetic gases and those vapors every day, or even every other day, over time, they are going to build up. 
And the OSHA site has some pretty nice information showing that while a one-off of exposure usually doesn't do too much, chronic exposure in people can be linked to reproductive effects miscarriages, genetic damages, um, in the immediate acute phase, nausea, dizziness, headache, fatigue, etc. But again, chronically, we see neutrophil impairment, we see liver damage, and we see fertility issues in a field that is 80% women. This is a problem. Definitely. And I think, like you mentioned that mortality rate, none of us want our patients to die. Okay, guys, like real talk, but I'm going to be honest. When we're placing a cat, which is commonly how it's done, a cat is placed in a box. In many cases, they're experiencing severe fear, which may be the reason why that option was chosen, which is very concerning, which we will talk about. And then what happens is that cat does not have an IV. That cat, again, like, like Tasha said, is not intubated. That cat doesn't even have a basic like blood pressure monitor on them. So literally there is no assessment of that animal. And in many cases, what happens is they're like, uh, the cat's asleep, the cat's seen, and they're basing when to open it on the cat, not moving. And again, I'm trying to not get upset, but that is insane. Like, yeah. And in many cases, when they check on the cat guys, Uh, it's upsetting. The cat is dead. Um, so because no one was monitoring in any way and their way of being like the cat is ready is when the cat, the cat's movements are minimized. There's really no other assessment, which again, sets up the staff to fail as well, because we're not, they literally have no criteria for when that cat is essentially anesthetized I wouldn't say the word appropriately, but to the point where they feel that they can do the medical procedures they need to do. Yeah. And, you know, I think that going into just thinking about stress in itself, right? Um, Usually we, when we think about cats or animals that get put into an induction chamber, it's because these animals are high stress. And most people think, oh, we can't get an injection into them or we can't get drugs into them. So we'll pop them in the, the you know, aquarium and fill it full of inhalant anesthetic. Just that that in itself is really stressful. Um, and I can show you a couple of studies that they found um, in mice, that mice in a study where they were just using inhalant anesthetic and no other drugs, they had increased cortisol, corticosteroid, and other glucocorticoids that were increased with the stress. They found that the mice were agitated. They would dig into the corners of the inhalant chamber. Uh, there was another study looking at both sevoflurane and isoflurane. So again, both of these things and found that most animals struggled very violently during these inductions. They breath hold, again, our rabbit friends. <laughs> um, so in that study, I think it was a 1999 study showing that both sevoflurane and isoflurane were adverse and should really be avoided in these mask or, or induction chamber things. So we know that the inhalant chamber in itself and that process of going down in an inhalant chamber causes increased stress, increased catecholamine release, breath holding, excitement, all of these things. In an animal that's already stressed, especially a cat that has underlying cardiac disease, this can be a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And stress definitely increases morbidity and mortality. And like you mentioned, placing the cat in that 
chamber or even placing a mask over their face as they are actively struggling. Oh, and for brachycephalic patients, it just like a mask over their face right. usually causes eye irritation. And I, I am very cautious about masking in a brachycephalic patient. No, I definitely, I, I thank you for mentioning that. And I think when it comes to fear and stress, our goal should be reducing that fear and stress and not escalating it. And when you place, a, especially a cat, but any animal into a small area where there is no chance of, basically there's no option for flight, right? To escape. Mm-hmm. Um, they panic more and then adrenaline, all of these things are things that escalate as they get stressed out. And then they can override, which is why I'm all about sedate soon, sedate early. Oh, drugs, man. Yeah. Because they will override the drugs. And I can definitely see that happening in this situation. So then, like you said, it might've started with a 3% and then they turn it up to five and it's been 10 minutes and you're just like, oh my gosh, this cat is panicking. And they're like, you said, kind of trying to get out. They may even be panting at that point due to the excessive stress. So these are not great. (laughs) We are not fans of boxing down cats because we care about humans and we don't want you guys inhaling. I mean, that's so dangerous, even for not, you know, if you're not a woman, um, to be inhaling gas on any, at any point in vet med. I mean, we're not just talking about people for the capacity for pregnancy. I'm, I'm right. talking about really anybody, you know, who, who has, um, cell. <laughs> it's dangerous to pets. It's dangerous to humans. It increases stress and then stress increases more morbidity and mortality. And these chambers kind of, again, cause a very large fear response. And then when it comes to increased fear and stress, as we all know, we then have compromised patient care and veterinary staff safety. So something I always say when I hear, because again, I'm hearing it less, that's a, that's a positive, but mm-hmm. when I hear we have a, I don't love the word fractious, so I don't use that word. Um, but when we have a very fearful cat, they feel like they may not have other options. But guys, if you can put a very fearful cat into a box, yeah, which is a lot of work, giving them an IM injection or even other options, which I'll have Tasha mentioned is a lot more realistic and easier and safer for, if you can like shake a cat into a box that's actively fearful and stressed way easier to give them, you can definitely give them an IM injection with a towel hold or even in a mesh carrier. I commonly will use a gentle control technique on the cat in the mesh carrier, place the mesh carrier down, not, not forcefully. And then someone will come up and give the cat an IM injection while they are still in their carrier. So a lot less stress for us and them and a lot more safety. And then I know you mentioned that other lovely technique that you were talking about before. Yeah. I mean, for me, people will say, Oh, we can't get an IM injection. We can't get an injection in like, okay, well, guess what, friends? I mean, all of the drugs that we use in kitty magic, right? Our butorphanol or, or buprenorphine, dealer's choice, ketamine, um, things like telozole, dexmedetomidine, these drugs are absorbed oral transmucosally. So if you can get that cat to hiss at you, you can squirt it into their mouth. And if you miss their mouth and it goes into their nose or eyes, guess what? Those are mucous membranes. 
it gets absorbed. Now, don't want to, I don't want people to leave this podcast thinking Tasha McNerney said to squirt all these cats and ketamine in their eyeballs. And, um, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that obviously cats don't read the textbook. Um, they're not going to just sit there. And usually again, they're very stressed out during this. They are afraid. They do not understand what's happening to them. So they hiss at you, squirt some drugs into their mouth. Usually, again, for me, if I'm doing it, it's a combination of ketamine, dexmedetomidine, and butorphanol because I want a nice sedative. Now, in a really fearful animal that, you know, their stress catecholamines are just surging, I don't think that that combination is going to knock them out all the way. They're not going to become, right, a dish rag. They are still going to be aware, but is it going to, it's going to slow them down enough that I can take the top off of that carrier. I can wrap them in a burrito that has a little feel away. Remember, I, I want to have the least amount of people possible in that room. And also people who are going to do things quietly, know what they're doing, um, have some reverence for the fact that this cat is terrified out of its mind. Um, I, I am happy that we are moving towards more low stress handling techniques. Uh, and hopefully the days of us taking four technicians to sit on a dog and place an IV catheter or, you know, God forbid the scruff and stretch that I thought was gone, but I still see every once in a while. Yeah, but we're getting better though. I think but... we're getting, I do think, yes, as, as a yeah. profession, we are getting better to understand the, the nuances that come with the fact that, you know, again, cats don't read the book. They definitely do not want to be there. And, you know, listen, I got to tell you, me as a person, I get scared going into the hospital, especially if I know they're about to put a bunch of needles into me. Um, so yeah, I would like it if somebody approached me calmly and quietly and squirted drugs into my mouth. And like she mentioned, she mentioned some of her favorite drug protocols, but I can't stress this enough as someone that works with mostly only super fearful animals, every animal is an individual oh, 100%. It comes to premedication sedation. I love a chart. I get it. I love a chart. I understand that they are helpful, but we are using those charts along with assessing that specific patient, their history that we're aware of and critically thinking and considering that how that drug works, what we need, like these are the pro, like these are the medical procedures we need to do. This is how painful this cat may be because that's a whole nother thing. But mm -hmm. in many cases, I see this in dogs, but especially in cats, people are not assessing and addressing pain prior to physically manipulating limbs, maybe for a orthopedic exam, or again, maybe the cat is arriving, presenting for pain, or again, the, the client most likely won't perceive it as pain, but as a veterinary yeah, professional. Usually they're, they're not eating. Right. Uh, right. Or intermittent vomiting in the animal. The cat has like severe abdominal pain. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we need to consider that again, it's, I think handling is really fun. Obviously it's something that I teach for a living, but I just like we, when we're figuring out a disease process in an animal, along with the veterinarian, it's a lot of critical thinking and a puzzle that is how I feel handling plans are, which a handling plan, what? Um, if I'm working with a very fearful cat, I understand on emergency because everyone, you guys, I get it. Everyone's like, I'll tell them all this stuff. And then they're like, what about this? And I'm like, you're still going to do all the things I just said. Um, <laughs> cause 
I think, I think me and Tasha both get asked a lot, but what about an ER setting? Mm -hmm. Um, and in that case, low stress, gentle control, fear-free handling, whatever you want to call it is even more important realistically for the safety of that patient. We want to bring that patient. We want to stabilize that patient and fear and stress does not help to do that. So when it comes to ER situations, we're going to assess the patient, have a handling plan that you may just make in your head very quickly, but as you do it more, you're more experienced versus being like, we're going to get, we're going to mask this cat. That's not a plan. Or we're going to grab the cat out of a carrier and we need blood. That is not a plan. No. Yeah. No. And I, I get it, man. We're, we're all busy. We're trying to do these things fast. And, you know, if you sedate the cat, it's going to add time. And, you know, I just think it's, we have to get away from what's going to benefit us versus what's going to benefit the patient. And I, I, I really do try to approach most of my cases as what is in the best interest of the patient. And if it turns into a time management issue, like if, if I can't provide good patient care because of time management, then there's a bigger like staffing time management, you know, management issue. This is, you know, not a patient care issue. We should be able to provide the best patient care possible if we have those resources on our shelves, you know? So one of the, the things I was actually talking about in an earlier episode of the anesthesia nerds podcast was I was talking with a sports medicine doctor and, you know, he just said, you know, as we get sedated radiographs. And I was just so happy that he said sedated radiographs, because I think that there's a lot of technicians out there listening right now who have struggled with, you know, a huge dog and trying to get like shoulder or elbow rads with no sedation on board. It's not fun for anyone involved. And we're only making the whole experience worse for the patient. So the next time they come in, they're going to be even more ramped up. And I think when it comes to Because in a perfect world, ideally as a field, I believe like as a behavior consultant and someone that consults with the general public quite often and lectures to them about how to advocate for their pets, but also support and love their veterinary professionals. I'll be honest. I tell them all that radiographs should be, their pet should be sedated and obviously less fear, stress, and anxiety for the pets. This minimizes injury to the staff and minimizes radiation exposure. Because I remember, I'm sure we all have these times where we would need to get radiographs on a dog, for example, or even a cat. And you guys, no joke. I'm sure we've all been there. We took like 30 fucking rads of of this animal. We're actually, the images aren't great quality. Of course not. So Now, to me, I tell my clients, I'm like, if you want to save money, your animal should be sedated because those radiographs that are getting set out to the radiologist are poor quality and they're difficult to assess. So again, I mean, I have so many reasons, obviously safety and less stress for animals and humans are my go-to, but also if we want to get to the nitty gritty, uh, you're also minimizing injury to your staff, you're minimizing radiation exposure and you're providing better quality care. I mean, those 30 radiographs we took, guys, no joke, it took probably three to four staff members, 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah. So sedation and- Let's sedate them. Yeah, just sedation saves time. Yeah. Whether it's an emergency or a radio, like we're taking radiographs. So hopefully our field is, is getting to the point where 
I'll have to listen to that episode. That sounds so interesting. Um, <laughs> where sedation for radiographs is just a fairly routine thing and client. And sometimes I'll hear veterinary professionals say, but the client can't afford blank, blank, blank. I'll be honest. I always tell veterinary professionals, you could say, well, we're going to do an anesthetic procedure, but we're giving the, what is it like a la carte? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, We're giving the client the choice. They can get an IV uh, because I have seen this. I'm sorry. Or again, at like, I work with a lot of spay and neuter clinics and unfortunately they'll give the client the option of this $5 pain med, which is not okay. Yeah. Uh, I still see that. I still see, you know, uh, plus minus post-op pain meds. And I'm like, I can't, I, no, that's not I mean, like, appropriate. no, no, not, that shouldn't be, that should not be a plus minus. That should right. be. So that's where I think some of these things, like whether it's, Hey, it's part of your appointment time, or it's part of your sedation protocol. It's all, we've all, there's a lot of creative ways financially to do it, but our clients do not know. And I'll be honest, I, when I'm speaking to my clients, cause I'm in all the world. So it's been very interesting now that I work, I work as a consultant and not in GP anymore and seeing clients perceptions. And it's helped me understand a little bit more of where there might be some miscommunication between general public and veterinary medicine, but I explained to them it's lower cost because of this, this, and this, these are the things I look for. And then they start when they call clinics to try to find them. I say, ask them if they have a registered veterinary technician on staff. So my, my, my clients are asking those questions because I tell them what the difference of an RBT and what not an RBT monitoring anesthesia is not in a negative way. It's just, they didn't ever told them these things. Right. And I just, I think that in, you know, we're kind of going off topic here, but that's fine. I like it. Uh, yeah, I think that most people take their animal to the vet and they just assume that everyone on the staff that's not wearing the white coat is like a certified person or, you know, they've been vetted, they've been through a program, et cetera, because that's what they would expect for any other healthcare professional, right? And I think that Canada has done a really nice job with kind of educating the public. They had kind of a uh, media blitz of um, information, letting the public know what an RVT is, what an RVT does, what their education looks like. So people in the public could ask if there was an RVT on staff and they knew what that meant, the level of care involved, if an RVT was the one on staff with your pet. Now, I just want everybody to be clear that I am in no way saying that people who are not certified or should not be able to, you know, administer sedation or do um, anesthesia or anything like that. What I'm saying is that if we really want to progress our profession forward, we've got to get some standard credentialing behind it. Again, whether that be CVT, RVT, LVT, like whatever, I don't fucking care. Pick one. Um, but we have to have some standards put in place that, hey, you have this level of education before you can go ahead and give a potentially deadly substance, as inhalant anesthetics can be, mm-hmm. to a patient. And I think that will also, with the st- standardization of titles and things like that, we would also get 
more of a standard that word, you guys, standardization, but of care. Yes. Because yes. there's a lot of people out there who are doing the best with what they were shown. Yes. And it's fairly outdated and not safe for them, like boxing down cats, for example. It's not safe for them or the patient, but there's no standardization of care. So that again, it's going to help everybody, but I know we got a little off topic, but it's applicable. So it is applicable. I mean, here's the thing you can be on the job train and you can, you can, I've seen some people on the job train. Uh, I can think of one tech. Her name is Bonnie Samey and she worked at Rao animal hospital in Glenside. And she was a maverick with cats, man. And she could get blood on any jugular. And if there was a dehydrated cat, she could hit, you know, hit a vein, put catheters in. She was amazing. Right. So I don't want to take away like on the job trained people can't have amazing technical skills. They certainly can. But if you stay at that one practice and you only learn that one way, you kind of have blinders on to the rest of what could be going on. And unless you do a lot of independent self-study of like textbooks and all this other you know information you could be um, ingesting, you're not going to see it. You're just not going to see it because your clinic has their way of doing things, right? Um there's a reason that we call people from Penn the Penn Wees, right? Because at Penn, we do this. Um, and that's not me talking out of school. I work for Penn and I actually really love it. Um, all the anesthesiologists at Penn are fantastic. Um, but there is, you know, you do get blinders on to the way other things can be done. And I think that's what's really great about vet med. I do think we need standardization, but that's not to say that every single clinic and every single person has to be doing things exactly the same. Right. There's a lot of correct things. There's there's a lot of critical thinking. Right. And that's why I love anesthesia, man. Anesthesia is not black and white. Certainly the math involved with anesthesia is pretty black and white, but anesthesia in itself is a balancing act and it is shades of gray. And that's what I enjoy because like you said before, every patient is so different. For some, I could hit, you know, this animal, a really nice, calm, chill cat that comes in, you know, I check its uh, feline grimace scale. I don't see any signs of pain in this patient. I give it a once over. Maybe we need to sedate it for some radiographs or something like that. I can get away with much lower doses. But if you look at another patient that is really ramped up, they're fearful, they are hissing, they have no interest in being there. I'm going to have to change my drug protocol and change my dosage. And that's why I say it's shades of gray. And I think to your point that you were saying earlier, every patient being an individual, I don't like to, I won't even start a protocol or discuss it with my anesthesiologist until I have went and met the patient. I want to see what, what do they look like in the cage? What's their grimace scale? Where do I think they're at? You know, can I go into the cage with them and potentially touch them without them getting afraid, fearful, and reacting. That is going to play into what drugs I choose and what drug dosages I choose. So they're, you know, where they are at plays a huge role. Not every patient is going to get the same protocol. Right. And that's where sometimes I think boxing cats kind of falls into this like one size fits all thing, which is terrifying when it comes to any type of medicine. Um, because again, every animal is so much different and ideally we're looking at their past history, or even if they're a new client, we're reviewing their past history. But in many, I've seen many cats who are not new, new patients and and they're being boxed. So I think you worded it perfectly as far as I'm going to assess the patient. I'm going to work with the veterinarian. We're going to come up with a plan 
And to be fair, I have a plan A, B, C, and D for every animal I work with. And I don't expect everyone to have that many plans, but at least have a plan A and a plan B. Oh yeah. Again, cats don't read the book, man. So (laughs) you might think, oh, I'll just give them a little bit of like Torb and, you know, God help you if you give them Torb and Dazzlam, but I'll just give them a little bit of Torb. And if that cat, again, if they're already stressed to the max and their catecholamines are surging, that's not going to be enough. You have to be able to pivot, right? Yeah. And the goal shouldn't be so in, we're obviously talking a lot about what to do instead. And a big part of that is assessing the animal, picking the best drug protocols based on what you're assessing, which is body language, pain, past history, communicating with the other, your colleagues, all that beautiful stuff. But also there are other things that we have control of to minimize stress and fear, which is, I talked to a lot of clients about transportation and handling on arrival. So for example, it takes me three minutes. How, how many technicians have a heartworm spiel or a um, post-recovery after sedation spiel? I have a transportation spiel for cats and dogs. It takes two minutes. But how many cats are arriving over thresholds? And a oh, lot of people yeah. are like, people don't listen. Guys, I have no issues. <laughs> and these cats are, they were fired from a veterinary clinic due to fear aggression. All I did was talk about low stress travel and a a tiny bit about carrier training. Cause in many cases I get thrown into the animal needs to see the vet immediately. And basically let's place them in a quiet room. They're not hanging out in the lobby. Let's one benefit to the pandemic lobbies are going Mm -hmm. not, they're not as common. People are just getting the animals in the room or having them wait in the car, which I love. Yeah. Um, But let's consider those things. If this if you've boxed this cat down in the past, which is not ideal, let's take that data and talk to the client about low stress travel and how to get the cat, how to hold the carrier from the bottom and not shake them like a roller coaster party and have them hit all over the place. Um, <laughs> placing them in the room right away with some classical music. Again, these are tiny little things that make a huge difference because most of the, the cats I work with arrive not over thresholds. Now I know we can't always control that, but that's a simple thing that we should be doing along with pre-visit pharmaceuticals when they're applicable. Um, because why, I mean, we all, thankfully, again, this is becoming a lot more common. Gabapentin is one of the go-tos, but there's other options. And this is the behavior nerd coming out. But if I'm going to have a veterinarian prescribe a PVP, I'm going to talk to that client about giving it. Um, and, and how to give it, of course, I have a bunch of medication tips and tricks, especially for cats, which I'm sure I will talk about in the future, but we're not going to say, put it in their, in their food, right? We're going to say, put it in a high value, like whipped cream or churu, or, and we're not going to say to scrub the cat and shove it down their throat because that's not realistic for your patients. And you want, I hear so many people say like the client's not compliant. They didn't give the med, but no one really asked the client if they know how to give. And then the right. cat's there and it's just, it's horrible for everybody. So yeah. I think we definitely need to think a little bit ahead and communicate with clients, but also of course, chemical restraint and pain management sooner. sooner oh, 100%. Sooner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that you know, one thing that maybe we haven't talked about and maybe we can hit on really quick 
is that there probably are people who are working in practices where they do still box down or mask down patients. And maybe the technician knows that this isn't optimal, but they're not sure how to speak up about it or like how to initiate change. And I think it can be intimidating to go up against maybe your medical director or the doctors who are saying, yeah, this is okay. Or, you know, if you're a new associate doctor and you know that this probably isn't the way we want to do things, but there's another associate who is doing it. I think to, to be armed with the information, right. I would never, I probably wouldn't make a big scene in the moment. I would just kind of right pull them aside afterwards. If you're uncomfortable with it, again, because you know, all of these things that we're telling you and guys, guys will give you links to lots of studies. Um, you know, you can say to them, Hey, uh, I was just, you know, taught in school that this was suboptimal, not only for the patients, but also for the staff. And maybe we can talk about it at a staff meeting and we can come up with some ways that we can change our policy so that we are not participating in this. And hopefully they'd be open to it. Again, I think that a lot of times if you approach them with studies showing why this isn't optimal and some alternatives, you know, I wouldn't just be on the clinic floor basically bitching about how it's terrible and they shouldn't do this and blah, blah, blah. I think that you, you know, I want to be part of the team and you want to look out for your teammates and the patients. You got to be part of the positive change, which means that you're, you know, actively trying to show people, hey, here's some restraint techniques I learned and we can try this instead. You know, you don't have to be the manager or the shift lead or whatever to be a leader as far as the technician goes. So, for me, I do a lot of relief at practices and I don't go in as a relief supervisor. I go in as a relief anesthesia tech and I say, hey, does it, hey, you guys, you know, I noticed that you're you're doing this for restraint. How about we try this instead? You know, as you know, with restraint, especially with cats, sometimes less is more. So like, let's ease up a little bit and, and maybe we can get done what we need to get done. And if we can't, there's drugs. We better living through chemistry again, sedate sooner than because in many cases, we may accidentally misassess the, the animal and the cat is showing pretty severe signs of stress on arrival, but maybe they're missed. Um, and then that cat begins to escalate and you guys say, well, or the cat may be frozen in fear, which is a common mm-hmm. thing I see in vet clinics that's misinterpreted as relaxed. Yeah. Um, and let's say you have to do an exam like these are needs, not wants. So a want is like a nail trim or a, a vaccine. We can reschedule this for later. This is not like, this is not, that's what I mean by that. I'm not saying it's not important, but it is not a need. A need is the cat has been vomiting and having diarrhea for a week, or the cat hasn't eaten for two days and we need to get those diagnostics. Yeah, I think that what you're at least um, kind of alluding to what you're saying is if you have a limited time window, uh, especially in a fearful animal, then you got to pick what you need to get done, right? You know, prioritize. (laughs) But yeah, you're going to because what I see commonly happen is the cat's escalating over time and people may even be noticing it and they're like, we'll get to the sedation maybe later. We're going to try this and this and this. No, they will override the drugs. You're spending way more time than you need to. You're putting everyone at risk. You're creating negative associations. So sedate sooner. (laughs) And see, I got there at the end, Tasha. Yeah, no, I think that you make a really excellent point. I mean, how many times have we seen that an animal is in for an ultrasound or radiograph, but you're not going to get to it until, you know, 
the afternoon. And so the animal is sitting here from the morning until the afternoon, and they're hearing all these other noises and these bright lights from the hospital and these other smells. And they're just getting more stressed as time goes by. I mean, my thing is like, even if the surgery or the procedure, diagnostic procedure, et cetera, isn't going to happen until, you know, the afternoon. And let's say you were, you were saying, Oh, well, we're not going to do it to the afternoon. I mean, I don't want to give him injectable medications. Now, by the time we get to the afternoon, it wears off, which just give him a little something to take the edge off for right now. Again, whatever the clinician wants to do, whether it be, you know, gabapentin or celio or whatever they want to do. Um, but why not just give him a little gabapentin now, if he's going to wait here for six hours for his procedure to be done, you still can give him injectable, you know, anesthetics or analgesics after those other things but let's take the edge off now. Yeah, definitely. And then as far as the note you mentioned about, cause I, I meet tons of amazing veterinary professionals and I'm sure I've been this person myself who was very ethically compromised in a situation where a cat was being boxed and I didn't feel safe and I felt uncomfortable. And even in positive changes are changes and humans are humans. So of course, we don't want to start screaming and cursing because that's not effective communication. <laughs> and you're going to just shut that person down to even if you, even when you provide those studies and other alternatives, which is helpful, they're already shut down to you. So I think like Tasha was mentioning, it's very important to advocate for yourself 100% and advocate for that cat. But instead of saying, don't do this, we're going to say, like, like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, this is why, and here's different outlets for why, like I tell a lot of technicians, whether it's, they have difficulty with maybe their veterinarian staff implementing pain management or basically, you know, appropriate anesthetic protocols, leave a few studies on the lunch table. They might not read them, but you're planting a baby little seed. <laughs> um, they yeah. may look at it. Like there's a lot of creative ways, which I'm sure many of my listeners have done. Please share them because I'm all about the more of that, the better. But when it comes to advocating for kind of going away from the box, because in some cases, this is all people know, which is why they're continuing to do it. They aren't aware of other, or they feel like, in many cases, I'm sure you get this too, Tasha, like the cat's fearful. We don't know how else to handle them. And that's where we talk about skilled handling and sedate, like doing the mouth sedation or sedating through a mesh carrier. Like I purposely have the really fearful cats I work with. I have those clients strategically buy mesh carriers. Yeah. There are so many, and it, it's five second sedation, you guys, like it's so simple. Yeah. Um, so there's a, obviously a lot of reasons why we are not fans of boxing cats and why this is a fairly outdated procedure that the whole veterinary community is going away from. Hence all the research and podcasts like this and me and Tasha talking about it in lots of other outlets. Um, but we also wanted to offer some alternatives to for what to do instead and how to plant those seeds and then I wanted to ask you, Tasha, I'm putting you on the spot, but would you be able to share, because you have so many interesting cases, would you be able to share <laughs> a case um, of a fearful cat where either maybe the practice you were at, because I know you do a lot of speaking, lecturing and consulting work, 
where they might've mentioned boxing a cat as an option, or, um, if you don't have any of those, an option, uh, experience where there was a cat that was really, really fearful and people weren't sure what to do. And you offered some assistance with that cat to, for them to be appropriately and safely sedated. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, listen, I, guys, I've been doing this for 16 <gasps> years. I have uh, been a part of a lot of things that go completely textbook and then things that go (laughs) really the opposite way. Interestingly enough, I remember a domestic long-haired cat. Uh, The cat's name was Noel. I just remember that being around Christmas time. The cat's name was Noel. And this was, I'm going back to when I worked at at a mixed practice way back in the day. And they were going to mask this cat down. Now, I'm 18 years old. I don't know. I'm like, okay, whatever. This cat is completely horrified. I'm pretty sure it was like an indoor, outdoor, potentially barn cat. Because this was like in rural Michigan. Mm-hmm. So they're going to mask this cat down. I'm not even sure what we were doing. But this cat flipped his mind, right? He was having none of it. Got away from the um, the tech who was holding him with the mask on his face. He like basically ran up the wall, uh, like on top of the cabinet. I don't even know how he did it. He ended up in the ceiling, like, like popped a ceiling tile. Noel was in the ceiling for two days. Oh, geez. (laughs) Two days. I remember this cat being in the ceiling uh, at this place. (laughs) And I always think about that because I was like, oh, man, we should have just given him some drugs. (laughs) (laughs) This was a learning experience. It was a learning experience. Um, you know, back then we didn't have, we, we weren't using as much of uh, obviously my favorite drug dexmedetomidine, which would have been very handy in that situation. Um, but there are things like that just that happen all the time. And I, as far as like cases go, I, I put a lot of stuff on anesthesia nerds. If anybody is on anesthesia nerds, I know that we put an example of the oral transmucosal, um, sedation and how we do that. And usually what, uh, what happens is that I get called in because someone has tried a sedation protocol that didn't work. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert, usually involves midazolam. And, <laughs> and they now are looking at me because like, what other drug can I give this cat? And, you know, the nice thing is we have so many different options for, again, not only oral transmucosal drug delivery, but also um, intermuscular or IV drug delivery. Um, but I think the nice thing is it doesn't have to always be all drugs, right? As Tabitha was saying, a lot of it is just the environment, being aware of the signs that the cat is giving you uh, proper restraint techniques go a huge way. And that's one thing that I I do feel, I I wish that there were more training programs or more people had to go through proper restraint training programs, because I can look back on some of the things that I graduated in tech school in 2005. And I can already look back and say like, Ooh, that I don't think that we should have been restraining the dog that way. And I think that any case that you're dealing with, you have to take, when you're looking at your plan for that patient, you have to not only take into account the pharmacology that you might use on that patient, but also the non-pharma things that are going to be important and make sure everybody on the team is on the same page before you go into that room or else the cat can end up in the ceiling. No, I think that's a wonderful point because I love drugs as much as Tasha does, but sometimes with cats and dogs, whether it's a pre-visit medication or sedation, I feel like that is the only plan. So that's the only part of their plan is, which again, I love that part, but just like a behavior or anti-anxiety medication, 
we need to utilize behavior modification and environmental enrichment and assessing the patient over time along you know along with that anti-anxiety medication this is very true when it comes to sedation and pvps i always joke that fear free isn't just peanut butter and trazodone and i joke about that in a kind way because sometimes obviously i'm coming from a good place but sometimes that's what it it appears to be and when the P, the trazodone and peanut butter didn't work, but it's so much, obviously it's so much. Yeah. More than that. So I think Tasha put it beautifully and veterinary anesthesia nerds. I'm sure all the listeners are very familiar with that amazing podcast. You guys, I don't even love anesthesia. It's not my favorite. And I like the <laughs> podcast um, it's not so- for everybody. That's fine. I get it. Listen, but, but- you know what? I'm glad that there are people like you who are going to get really jazzed about the nuances of a behavior consult, because honestly, for me, that sounds draining. And I'm so happy that there are people like you who are going to sit down and take the time to right deep dive in because a behavior consult is not like a, oh, we can have this banged out in 30 minutes, right? Like that is, you're getting in there with the clients and the patient, which is so needed. So I'm happy that there are people like that who enjoy behavior, who enjoy derm, who enjoy dentistry. You know, we all kind of find our niche and what we like the best. And it doesn't have to be anesthesia, although I'll tell you anesthesia is the coolest. Uh, it is no pretty ma- important. No matter what those ECC people say. I stay up to date. I think, again, like nutrition is probably one of my least favorite things, but I still do nutrition CE because it's a big part of my job. Now it might, you guys, I definitely do way more behavior CE than nutrition CE, but as veterinary professionals, animal behavior professionals, it's important that we stay well-rounded and learn from our colleagues because none of it, none of us know all of it. So Tasha, thank you so much for being here to talk about this lovely topic. And like I said, guys, we're going to be sharing tons this, most of the podcasts don't have this many resources, but we understand that a lot of people aren't comfortable with this technique and may not know where to start as far as transitioning away from it. So we will be sharing a lot of resources and do our best to support you and the vet field to get away from this outdated procedure. But I always like to ask my guest, Tasha, what is something that makes them happy? This could be Dex or it could be something un-veterinarian related. She's cuddling with her cat right now. You guys can't Oh my see God, her. this Precious. cat is so stupid. I, I love, love her so much. She's so I know. cute. Gosh, I'm like, I want to be annoyed with her because she loves her <laughs> we came guys. home one time, man. And she, I don't even know how she did it. Uh, so kudos to her. But she had opened up one of the kitchen cabinets and just, just went through and started knocking every wine glass off. So we came home to like six broken wine glasses in the kitchen floor. We were like, what the heck? And she's just sitting on the counter like, yeah, I did it. (laughs) I was bored. She's so gorgeous. Oh, it's so hard. She's just so gorgeous. I mean, all of our cats are, we're cat people. Um, I actually don't have a dog in my life right now. We're we're cat people. And uh, they make me happy, even though, you know, they throw up on the carpet. And I mean, it was my fault for getting a white rug. I really should have thought better. Uh, (laughs) You have a a child and you got a white rug. I know. (laughs) You're brave. You're braver than me. It's yeah. It's a little, yeah. I is the thing that makes you happy in your beautiful cats right now. Yeah. These cats make me happy. And, um, I'll tell you, honestly, what makes me happy is kind of the, the, just the place I'm at in life right now. Um, I don't know. I don't love to admit that I'm in my (laughs) 
over 40 now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So Dude, I know I'm I had 38. Somebody... It's so and... interesting. Cause I think we're both going through similar mental health, physical journeys. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, um, it gets better when you get older, you guys, you start to realize shit. It's it does, crazy. man. <laughs> I wish, and I said this to my sister, we just went on this like amazing road trip to sister's road trip to Maine, uh, which was amazing. It was just fantastic. No veterinary medicine was done during the whole week of this trip. And we were just connecting. We both kind of said that really that saying that youth is wasted on the young is kind of true. Like what I wouldn't give to have the kind of self-confidence and the knowledge just in my, in myself as a person and what I stand for as a person and what I'm willing to tolerate and all that, man, if I had this at 25, I would, I mean, I would be, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren or something right now. I literally was telling my husband the other day, I was like, I would love to have Cause again, mental, physical health journey, super, I'm sure many people who are familiar with me, cause I share a lot of it have kind of seen it. And I was like, oh, dude, if I could be 20 again. And he's like, you don't want to be 20. Again. No. And I, I would not go back to where I was at 20. Like, Ooh, no, I'm just saying if I had all of this, like, you know, time, it would be, oh be man, just, you know, just the ability to say no. And that's something I'm still working on, right? Obviously, like, as we talked about before we started recording, I have like 18 different fucking jobs. Like I can't, it's hard to say no to people. That's a little bit ego. It's a little bit guilt. Like there's a lot of things in there. Don't worry. I'm working on it with my therapist. But (laughs) (laughs) just the like being able to say, no, that's not a right fit for me. And, or, you know, that's beyond my capacity right now. Uh, I really only started doing it in the past couple of years. beyond my capacity right now. And- it's a game changer, man. And I think that like, for me, I just started realizing that I wanted to be more present for my kids. I was doing a practice visit a couple weeks ago and the veterinarian there said that he had four kids. And I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. And we were talking about kids. And he said, you know, he's, he's been a veterinarian for 30 some years. And he was like, yeah, um, my kids just don't remember me being in their childhood because they knew I was always at the clinic and I would always uh, come in. And he was like, I really regret that. They know that I was not there. I was never there to see their childhood. And I was like, man, I definitely do not want that. Um, I, yeah. I have a kid. Um, he has called me out a couple of times where, you know, I've been at the basketball game and he was like, Hey, you weren't even watching what I was doing. I was like, you're right. I was answering emails on my phone. Like, oh, I don't want to be that parent. And so it's hard, man. It's hard to say no. And it's hard to be the, you know, the team member that leaves on time because you have a family commitment. And I think it's even harder in our field because we're, let's be honest, uh, we're also gosh darn passion driven. Oh, yeah. Um, So it just makes it even more. We all not not only do we all genuinely care about our jobs, our patients, our clients, our team, but also that passion just because I have very similar issues that Tasha does where I have way too many jobs. Um, and I think we, we put responsibility on ourselves to do things that necessarily are not our responsibility. I love that about us and about many of my amazing colleagues out there, but it makes it all harder to do that whole like work-life balance vibe that everyone likes to talk about. Yeah. I mean, if people 
figure that out, let me know. I would. Yeah. Share with us your secret. I'm still a work in progress, but I definitely feel, you know, ever since I've really been intentional about where I want my time to go, it really has been a game changer for me. I'm so proud of you. I've seen it and it's beautiful, super corny, but progress is not linear uh, and it looks different for everybody. And it's interesting because like I said, a lot of my colleagues and friends who are similar ages of me and in vet med who have kind of, we may have been different paths, but a lot of us are kind of going through this, like, oh shit, dude, like I want to live life or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's not to say that you can't live life and be passionate about veterinary medicine. Oh, no, we I, both, I mean, I our freaking, lives are vet med. Yeah. I, sure. my, my life is vet med. I mean, my, I have tattoo sleeves that are all veterinary they're anesthesia drugs. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. love veterinary and I love anesthesia and I don't see myself doing anything else, but it really, it really is again, only the past couple of years that I've been like, Oh, I actually do have to mentally make sure that I am choosing the right projects and choosing the right things and advocating for myself and my family, because it's going to make me a better technician. It's going to make me better for my patients. You know, it took me a long time to get to that point. And I'm happy that I have. So vet med all the way. I do love it. Uh, <laughs> but I see that it can be uh, it can be a complicated relationship. You got it. I think we all because, again, I love I love vet med and I can't imagine. I do. I mean, I have a fucking podcast about it. So do you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so we we love it. But also we recognize nothing's perfect. That's 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 just the truth with any career choice. And um, I'm glad to see more of us talking about these things because we need to address them and bring them up. And it looks different for every person, but it's important to advocate as we always say, advocate for yourselves, like you advocate for your patients, but thank you so much for being here, Tasha. You're fucking amazing. You probably know it already, but doesn't hurt to be reinforced occasionally. I really appreciate your time and I'm sure we will have Tasha back. So let me know what you want it. She knows all the things. Um, and anesthesia. And I know very few things. <laughs> is her specific talent, but also she could talk about lots of other things. So let us know what you want her to talk about and definitely check out veterinary anesthesia nerds. Again, even if anesthesia isn't your favorite, it's a big part of her jobs and the podcast is very good. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to come on here and talk to you about, uh, you know, pain management and anesthesia and drugs, man. Just just give the drugs. Just give the drugs. That needs to be a gift. You didn't yeah. that. Just give the drugs. Someone make that happen. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Tasha. Thanks.